0: And it's wonderful to see all of you this morning as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. And today we're going to be talking about hope, riches, and power. Hope, riches, and power. Sounds like a Tony Robbins seminar, and maybe we'll run across some coals at the end or something like that. But it's kind of funny. Hope, riches, and power doesn't necessarily sound like the type of thing um, that you would get in a Christian sermon, but nevertheless, that's exactly what Paul is going to talk about this morning. Hope, riches, and power. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 23 this morning. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. We'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as I read the Word of God. This is God's Word. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray for your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see. As Paul even writes here in this very passage, Lord, that we need to have the eyes of our hearts opened up. This is not just mere human knowing and a matter of our minds, our intellect, but this is a matter of our souls. This is a matter of the heart. And so we just pray You would speak to hearts this morning. We pray You would shine a light in every heart this morning that You would reveal our thoughts to us, the things that are from You and the things that aren't. Pray You would shine a light on our behavior, our actions, our lifestyles, our decisions. And I pray that we would know the things that we need to change in our lives because they do not conform to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray You'd show us those things that we're thinking of quitting or abandoning or perhaps we're growing weary, but they are good. And we are called to continue and to persevere in them. Would You shine a light on those things too so that we may not give up or lose heart? Pray for a blessing now on Your people as we seek to understand the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, I'm calling the message hope, riches, and power. Um, I think those are the three main things that Paul is praying for. So we looked at his benediction last week. We talked about how he took a classic Jewish benediction for the one God, eulagetas kurios, the one God, blessed be the Lord, and we talked about how Paul opened up that Jewish expression of monotheistic praise to include Jesus and even names Jesus as Lord. So we talked about what a remarkable thing that is for a Jewish monotheist who saw Christians as an enemy of Judaism and to turn around and become the foremost advocate of of the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely astounding, and we saw that unpacked in the form of a benediction. Well, this week, as chapter one continues, what we see is a transition from a benediction to God, blessed be the Lord, to an intercessory prayer. That is prayer on behalf of others. That essentially is what intercessory prayer is. Uh, a lot of prayer. <laughs> as you probably know, is often when we pray for ourselves. Does anyone else do that? Do you pray for yourself? Uh, Do you tend to perhaps pray for yourself more than others? I think that's fairly normal, and it's not wrong to pray for yourself. But a part of prayer... And you see it in the life of Paul, not only in Ephesians, but everywhere else, is what we call intercessory prayer. That is interceding on behalf of others in the life of prayer. So that is a vital component of Paul's prayer life, and I believe he is modeling an exemplary Christian life. It's not just an apostolic life, it's a Christian life. So we are also called to intercede in prayer on behalf of others. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. So when he enters into this intercessory prayer, this prayer on behalf of the Ephesians, and by extension, to us, because we are also members of the church of Christ, the prayer is for us, and the prayer includes a number of things which we'll talk about, but mainly Paul's three requests are that we would know the hope of the calling that we would know the riches of the inheritance of God, and that we would experience the power of God in Christ. Those are the three things he's praying for, and so I believe these are things we need in our lives as well. But let's begin by looking at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... You know, there's many things that a church can do, and there's many ways churches differ. You can differ in your programs, in your activities, in where you meet, and certainly in personalities. By definition, you're going to have different personalities at different churches, and that's not wrong. That is what it is. It's a part of life, but one of the things people do is they tend to judge such things as though that is essentially what a church is, but a church is not essentially those things. A church is essentially what we see here. There are two basic essential criteria for a Christian church. Number one, that the church have faith in the Lord Jesus. Any church that calls itself first, whatever, Baptist, Methodist, uh, first non-denominational church, whatever it is. And they have a building and they do religious programs and all this, if they do not, from the heart, genuinely believe, they trust in the Lord Jesus, that is not a true Christian church. You have to have faith in the Lord Jesus. That He's your Savior. That He is number one. It's not just about getting together with other people, as important as that is. It's not just about activities and programs and, and where you meet and how you do it and your style and all that. It's faith in the Lord Jesus and I know for some people when I say this it's you know you're thinking well duh I mean isn't that yeah I know that but it's amazing how easily it can be left behind we see this in the pages of Scripture itself we see in the letters of Revelation and I know this passage would often get used at altar calls directed at non-believers behold I stand at the door and knock that's Jesus right Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone would open, I will come in and sup with him, and he with me. And that will be used in an evangelistic context, talking to people who aren't Christians. Maybe they don't go to church, maybe they don't Bible, and we use that. Maybe you can argue you can use that. Not sure you should, but let's just say it's okay for now. That's not the context, is it? The context of that passage is Jesus is speaking to a church. He's speaking to a church. You would think, well, you don't. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I mean, how could a church possibly be meeting and doing all kinds of good things? And Jesus is actually on the outside saying, do I have permission to come in? But we know that it happened. It happened not only in the first century, it can happen today to any church. You can so get caught up in the work of the ministry You can so love the ministry. You can so love the things going on. They can be so exciting and so interesting and seven days a week. You can just be engulfed in different things. And again, not even saying those things are bad. But you can actually, in the doing of them, leave Jesus behind. And so he commends this church at Ephesus as being a church that genuinely has faith in the Lord Jesus They believe in Him. And notice the second thing he says. And your love for all the saints. These are the two main criteria of what a Christian church is. Your faith is not in anyone except Jesus Christ. And I love all the saints whoever they are, wherever they are, what color they are, what background they are, what little idiosyncrasies and quirks they have, and I know when we get together and actually talk, it'll come up and, oh, really? You think that? Oh, really? Oh, that's weird. I didn't even know two people that thought these different things could come together. You love all the saints. You love them. A genuine family familial love for the saints is a part of the sign that you know Jesus. And all true Christian churches, they don't have to look alike on the surface. They can look very, very different, and that's perfectly fine. Where they must not look different. Indeed, where they must not be different is in these two criteria. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. It's very telling that when Jesus was asked of the 613 commandments written in the Torah, Which is the greatest? This is what Jesus said. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Do you see how important that is? That is the foundation of a church. These two things. And if they're not there, that is not a true church. I know throughout history, um, Christians in various parts of the world at various times have added to that. Well, and if you don't also have this and also have that, and there's a lot of discussion and argument about what other things should be there, and some of those are important discussions to have. And sometimes it gets a little tricky and hard to prove, but this is not tricky. And this is not hard to prove. And it's not questionable at all. Every true Christian church must have faith in the Lord Jesus and Him alone, and they must love all the saints. In verse 16, because of this, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Notice that the Christian life is a life of prayerful dependence upon God and prayer is not complete without thanksgiving. So we already saw intercession. The life of prayer is not complete without intercession. So when we're teaching people to pray, and we need to teach people to pray, the disciples who actually followed Jesus even asked Him this very question. I know some of us think, well, you shouldn't have to teach people to pray, they should just know. Well, apparently that's not always true. Again, if you had it modeled for you your whole life, it makes sense why we would think that. But people in the church, especially if you've been a believer for a long time, especially if you were raised in the church, we have to remember that not everyone is coming from our background. And they may not have the first clue about what prayer is or what it ought to be like, or, or what it shouldn't be like, or anything else. So prayer has to be taught, and it has to be modeled for others. One of the most basic things that I would say, if there's something you don't have to teach in prayer, it's probably this. You probably don't have to teach people to pray for themselves. Even non-believers will pray. Uh, the old saying goes, there's no atheists in foxholes. Well, that's because the prayers start going up when the bullets start flying, right? So prayers and oh Lord, save me, right? Oh Lord, save me. Even the most hardened atheist under the right or wrong circumstances knows how to pray that kind of a prayer. Lord, save me. If you get me out of, if I survive D-Day and landing on the beaches of Normandy, oh, I'll go to church and get a Bible. And I don't know if you've seen, but there's pictures of a Bible with a, a bullet actually stuck in it. A young soldier who said he wasn't even a Christian was given a, a little pocket Bible. And so he put it in the pocket of his uniform. And on the beaches of D-Day, a German piece of shrapnel came flying and lodged itself in the bullet and the doctor said if that Bible was not there, it would have gone straight through his heart and he would have died instantly on that beach. Kind of an interesting story. But you don't have to normally teach people to pray for themselves. So assuming you know to do that, we've seen that intercessory prayer, praying for others. And now we see here in verse 16, thanksgiving. Because again, one of the things that happens is prayer, if not instructed, can easily veer in one direction. That's why the Lord's Prayer given to us, it's it's such a great model because it includes all the basic aspects of what a healthy prayer life ought to be. And so Thanksgiving, yes, we're asking God for things for us, that's okay. We're asking God to do things for other people, that's good but we are also to give thanks in prayer. We are to regularly thank God for what He is doing. Thankfulness to God is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. On the opposite hand, unthankfulness is a sign of spiritual immaturity. I remember reading it you know, years and years ago. I think it was in 1 Thessalonians where Paul's talking about the last days, right? Like it's going to get really bad and there's going to be all these horrible things. And in the list of how you'll know it's the last days is, and in the last days, there'll be this, there'll be this, there'll be this, and there'll be unthankful. That's one of the signs of of the last days is unthankfulness. And you think to yourself, well, I mean, is unthankfulness really that big of a deal? I mean, that it would be this. Apparently to God, unthankfulness is, is a grave sin. To not be thankful to God for what He has done for you is actually a grave sin. And so expressing thanks in prayer is something that Paul does regularly and that we should also include in our lives. It's part of a healthy prayer life. In verse 17 he says, "...that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Notice he says, in the knowledge of Him. While faith and knowledge are not identical, they are related. Too many times in our culture, people take faith and knowledge and say that these things are opposites. If you have faith you don't really know what you're talking about. You're choosing to shut your brain down. That's actually what some people will say. And by the way, this isn't just like Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect, a self-professed atheist who says people of faith are literally people who turn off their brain. That's what he says. Here's the irony, so I get that coming from him. There's a lot of Christians that actually feel the same way. Except they have faith, but they think, oh, well, that's devoid of knowledge. You don't need to know anything. I don't need to learn anything. It's not about studying the Bible. It's not about learning more and more what God says and wrestling over difficult ideas and trying to figure out, well, how does this go, go with this and what's going on? They go, oh, no, that's not a part of it at all. It's You just believe. You just believe. Well, I think both of those ways of thinking about faith and knowledge are wrong. It's true they are not identical, but they are related. And again, I know faith is a very religious word, and in a sense, rightly so. But if I can boil it down to what it basically means, is simply trust. That's all faith is, it's trust. And I think we can still use the word faith because the referent is God. Right, So faith is just trust. You trust people. You trust people every day. Our entire economic system is built on trust. You trust that this is going to be worth this or that currency actually amounts to this, that this will happen. If you're going to marry somebody today, you're trusting in a year they won't be completely different and and go sideways on you, right? Like you're trusting an awful lot. We do all kinds of things based on trust. And I don't think we would tell people, you shouldn't start a business, you shouldn't go to college, you shouldn't get married, because you'd be trusting there'll be a job down the road. You're trusting that person will be even somewhat the same person as the day you married them. We wouldn't tell people that, right? You couldn't do anything meaningful that takes planning or commitment if you didn't trust. But what would we say? I think a wise person would say, but definitely consider the information you have. If you're going to get married, you need to consider who this person is. You'll be trusting at the end of the day. You'll never know everything there is to know before you get married. And if that's where you want to be, then just don't ever get married because you'll never know. I think there's a certain amount of knowledge you need in order to get married, but you will always be trusting In something that goes beyond what you know. And I think the same thing is true of a relationship with God. When a person comes forward to Christ, to me, it's not the day I got all my questions answered. Are you kidding me? When I came to Christ, it was really the day one question got answered. That I am a great sinner and God is a great Savior. That's, That's all I needed to know the day that I came to Christ. And ever since then, I've had a whole lot of questions that I've asked, some of which have never been answered, some which have been answered, and even so, I'm growing in knowledge, which is important, and on the basis of that knowledge, I can actually increase my faith. And so these are not identical, but they are related. According to Paul, in order for faith to grow, there must be an increase in the knowledge of the Lord. So churches that don't teach the Bible and they just say, well, let's just sing a lot of songs. Let's just have experiences. Again, not against those things. Those are good. But if you push out the knowledge part of it, if you push out the intellectual part of it, you are actually not allowing genuine biblical faith to grow. Because faith is related to knowledge. So much so that in a famous verse you probably know, Romans ten seventeen. Paul says this, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So notice that if you're going to believe, faith, trust, you have to know something, don't you? Namely, the Word of God. So the information about God through God's Word is then met and enables faith to happen. And so we need both. He mentions this word revelation, may, you, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Revelation is not something that we do. It is something that God alone can do. Again, this is beyond the knowledge and information part. This is beyond cognition of the brain. Revelation is more than this. It is an activity of God. It's, it's how two people can sit side by side in a church service. One breaks down in tears because they hear the voice of the living God forgiving them of their sins and calling them forward, and the other person sitting right next to them physically, touching shoulders, senses and feels nothing of the kind. They heard the same word. So what's going on? The Bible says revelation is happening in one and not happening in the other. It is more than just hearing and getting the information. It's not less, but it certainly is more. And that is the activity of God. This is why people cannot truly come to Jesus as Lord merely through arguments and clever strategies. Arguments and strategies are not wrong per se. Uh, uh, strategy, certain kinds of outreach programs, that's a strategy. Uh, arguments, hey, have you, have you heard the, the cosmological argument for God? Have you heard the ontological argument for God? You know, um, I can argue these kinds of things, but that's not in and of themselves what makes a person actually come to Christ. They are not sufficient. At best, they can be used by the Holy Spirit as a means of revealing. Okay, so for us, we can't talk anyone into the kingdom. I had a friend who's not a believer come to me and and tell me, he's like, you know you can't convert me, right? And my response is actually, you're absolutely right. I cannot convert you. That's not my belief. For a lot of people, they believe. It, it is something that we can do to others. We can convert you. Or, or that's their, a parent's mission. I'm going to convert my kid. I'm going to make them into a believer. All I have to do is educate them a certain way and put them in certain environments and make sure they go to Christian school, make sure they don't stay up past 10, make sure they only get an hour of video games a week. Uh, I think my kids would die if it was only an hour a week. But you know, just if I just do everything right, I will convert them. Even in the history of the church, people have, and you, this can go really bad. I mean, on the one hand, if it's mild, you get a strict parent who maybe went a little over the top and, and then breaks down with guilt because their kid isn't converting. But if you want to go real crazy, you can look at church history and you can look at the Spanish Inquisition where the belief was so strong that we can convert someone that the, the logic was, look, if you refuse to convert then we are justified in saving your eternal soul by putting you on a rack and stretching your limbs until you confess Jesus is Lord. We are converting you. If you actually understand what Paul is talking about, about revelation, the activity of God, illumination, something that only God can do, then you understand that no clever strategy or argument or dare I say, even torture tactic, can ever convert somebody. At best, we can be instruments or means through which God acts and reveals Himself. I preach the Word not because I can convert anyone, but the God who speaks the Word, who stands behind the Word, He is able to convert a human heart. But not me i am not able to do such things furthermore the knowledge that is spoken of here probably reflects more of a hebrew background and the hebrew word for knowledge is yada say yada yada, yada is the word to know and it's interesting cuz uh, the hebrew language it's all built on verb stems yada means to know and the word for hand is yad Exact same word minus the aleph at the end. Yad and yada To know and hand. What does that tell you about the Hebrew view of knowledge? It's knowledge by experience. It's knowledge by touch. What is the most basic kind of knowledge an infant has when they come into the world? It's Knowledge by touch. They're they're learning how to operate their fingers and their toes and the sense of smell of mom and the cuddling and the warmth. They know by touch. They know by experience. So in addition to our brains, which is a part of our bodies and our intellectual life, we are also to know God by experience. That the God who revealed Himself to Moses was the God who revealed Himself in His saving action toward Israel. That He was the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He instructed Moses, when you go into Israel and you bring them back, bring them right back to this place. Because I will reveal Myself as the God they could know by saving experience. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who trusts in Him. It is a knowledge by experience. Paul is praying that you and I would know Jesus. That we would know Him tangibly. This is why worship is so important and why we're trying to create just more opportunity, at least a culture, an environment of freedom where when we're singing and praising that you're invited. This isn't about drawing attention to ourselves or, or, or anything else. This is about lifting up our hands because we want to experience God. Kneeling down if we want to kneel down. Standing, sitting, silent, raising, whatever it is, we want people to actually experience God because we don't believe knowledge is simply mere intellectual assent to a proposition, like in a classroom where you don't know that a quantum theory, you're like, yeah, okay, sure, on the chalkboard, makes sense. We want yada. We want people to know and encounter and feel the touch of God in a worship service. And that is what we want to happen here. And again, as I've said, it's not the whole of Christian experience, there's the cognitive part, But the knowledge of God should be more than that. As we get into these final verses, we get into the three key things that Paul is praying for. Hope, riches, and power. Starting at verse 18. He says, "...the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling." So there in the New King James, it says the eyes of your understanding, which communicates the meaning accurately, but literally it says the eyes of your heart. So so take these two metaphors, your eyes and your heart, and it sort of combines them together. Again, it's this idea that there's another kind of knowing. There's the knowledge of faith, this idea of faith and sight. There's a difference between being able to see with your eyes and being able to see with your heart. There's, again, the story of the blind man. This is ironic, right, in the Gospels, and sometimes we don't pick up on it, but it's ironic that there's all these people that can see with their eyes Jesus, but they don't see Him as Lord. And in the very next scene it says, but there was a blind man who could not see with his eyes, and he's calling out from the side of the road, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. Son of David. So I ask you in that story, who can see? We look at the blind man and go, oh, poor blind man, you can't see. But the blind man can look back and say, oh, poor people that can see, you are blind. Because there is another kind of seeing and knowing. The eyes of the heart, Paul says. And again, this is the activity of the Holy Spirit and the action that we call revelation. The eyes of your understanding. Now, the word hope, is an important word isn't it hope hope is a very important concept the word hope when attached to god's nature and promise is not the same as when we normally use it think about the word hope when do you use it what do you mean by it even for me as 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 a pastor and somebody studies the bible a lot reads you know greek and hebrew and commentary still even then when I use the English word hope, a lot of times it's used in, I wouldn't say an anti-biblical sense, but a, but a non-biblical sense. Um, if I see someone I haven't seen in a long time and their schedule is really busy, my schedule is really busy, we might say to each other, I hope we can get together, right? Okay, and, and what does that mean? It's sort of, is that any kind of guarantee of anything? No, not at all. What is it? It's sort of optimistic expectation, Right? And there's no certainty involved whatsoever in that statement. As a matter of fact, we might even say, I hope we can do lunch, and we both know it's probably just not going to happen, things are crazy. We literally have the opposite schedules and it's just not going to work. That's not what hope means in the Bible when it's with reference to God and God's promises. The word hope in a theological sense means something that is connected to absolute certainty. When you hope in anything else, there's always the possibility it won't be what you hoped. Right? I hoped this job was going to be fulfilling, but it's not. I hoped that when we bought this house, the economy would be good and the housing market wouldn't bust, but it did. When we talk about hope in a biblical sense with reference to God, it implies that Absolute certainty. As a matter of fact, so much so, in Romans 5:5, Paul says this, and we know that hope does not disappoint. What do you mean, Paul? Hope disappoints an awful lot. I mean, my gosh, if I start writing down all the hopes and dreams I had, it's I mean, there's some you know good stuff in there, but there's a lot of disappointment. So, what does Paul mean? Hope does not disappoint. Paul's not wrong, but we're wrong if we read him wrong. He's talking about hope that is rooted in who God is. So, notice the context it says, the hope of his calling. It's not even the hope of your calling or what you want to do, it's his calling. This harkens back to what we looked at last week, which was the doctrine of election and predestination. If God has called you from all eternity, then it is more real and more sure than anything in human existence. Paul communicated this fact by using this language, before the foundations of the world he chose you. Before anything material in the universe, think about all the things science studies, astronomy, and all, as far out as we can see. Before all of that, more real than all of that, Paul says, was God setting his love upon you and choosing you. So when we talk about Christian hope, this isn't, gosh, I sure hope this works out, but it might not. This is 100% certain. This is hope, in Paul's words, that won't disappoint. The hope of His calling. And that is what Paul wants us to know. He wants you to know the hope of His calling on your life. I know there's certain seasons of life where things can can go wrong from our perspective. Relationships go bad. It's like, whoa, what in the world was that about? My job was went that way. Your health went that way. And, and you can wrestle with your understanding of your call. Now that can happen, trust me. i seen pastors go through that crisis of, I'm not knowing what I'm doing or who I am or what's going on. I thought it was going to look like this and it didn't and all this stuff. So it can happen to anybody. So you can wrestle with your understanding of your call. But what Paul wants you to do is get your eyes on the Lord. He wants you to get your eyes on God. And he wants you to know his calling on your life isn't going anywhere. Anywhere. Not sharing any names, but I've had very close friends, acquaintances, good people. Anyone looked at their life and the way they lived their life from the outside, they say, you know, these are good people ministers even, some pastors, and their lives completely fell apart. Go through divorce, children overdose on drugs, die, lost their job, lost everything, got cancer, died at 30 years old, whatever, just all these things, and people wrestle with this sense of calling, I thought my life would be different. I thought if I read the Bible a lot, and I got involved in church, and I volunteered, and I served, and I, I just I thought it would all go this certain way. And you can look at your sense of your calling, what you think your call is, what you want your call to be. But it's not about our sense of call or what we want for our lives. It's God's call on your life. So for me, what I'm learning is, as, as my sense of calling shifts and changes and goes this and that, you go through different seasons of life, like, I thought this was going to be this and I thought this was going to be that and all this, I, wow, I felt like I could see 100 miles down the road, I could see the next 10 years, clear as day, and the next thing you know, it's like the darkness is so thick, I can't see my hand in front of my face, I didn't see that coming. And the tendency is to think, well, because things have changed, oh, my calling is in jeopardy. I don't know what's going on. God's not in control. And Paul says, nothing could be further from the truth. No matter what. No matter what. Fill in the blank. Anything you want. No matter what. Nothing can keep you from the hope of His calling on your life. And if you get that, if you can say to your circumstances, I don't care what you're doing or what's going on or what people are saying or if, if this, is, this situation is just screaming, give up to me. I don't look at that. I look at the Lord and I look at His calling on my life. And I know that He has not let go. Because hope in God does not disappoint. It's so important we understand that our hope is in His calling on our lives. So if we find ourselves then in a place of despair, which is the opposite of hope, right? If we find ourselves in a place of despair, it is a sign that we have placed our hope in the wrong thing or the wrong person. And I know sometimes as Christians we can have a hard time hearing that. They're like, well, no, I'm a Christian. I do good things, but I'm in a place of despair. Well, the truth is maybe I don't trust as much in Jesus as I thought I did. And that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Again, this idea of all or nothing, like, like we're not people on a journey who are growing, right? Human beings that grow. You start off a baby, and then you hit the toddler stage, and then you're going to elementary, and then you're at junior high, and then teenage years. Oh gosh, look out. And then you're, you know, you're growing up and you move on. There's life stages. It's not that you don't believe. It's that... You don't believe as much as you thought you did. And part of what I realize sometimes is hope I thought was in God was actually in things I thought God was going to do for me. Or certain plans. I just thought, you know, I trusted this road would be this way. and To be honest, my hope was in that. My hope was in smooth sailing. I got married thinking, oh, it's going to be smooth sailing. And, and for some people, I know some people, that that's their experience. Other people couldn't be more the opposite. And they're disappointed and disillusioned. Should I get divorced and all this? And the first thing I would say is, where's your hope right now? Was your hope that this person would be your savior? They would save you from, from all your dysfunction and all your sins and all your weirdness and all your selfishness? You thought they'd save you? A lot of times it exacerbates it, doesn't it? But now is an opportunity in our place of despair. We're not without hope. But we need to get our eyes back on the Lord because our hope is in His calling on our lives. He goes on to say in the same verse, last part of verse 18, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Again, last week we looked at that the inheritance spoken of here is not our inheritance, although the Bible does talk about our inheritance at certain places, but rather the fact that we are the Lord's inheritance. That's what Paul is talking about. And specifically, Paul wants us to know that the Lord considers us to be the riches of the glory of His inheritance. Some people look at that. I think most translators get it, right? Even uh, the New King James, I think, reflects that here. But some people go, well, wait a minute. No, it's saying that you know we're going to have uh, glorious riches somewhere else. They, they don't like seeing that. Wait a minute. No, maybe it's God's glory. It's His inheritance. And we are the riches that He inherits through Christ. But the grammar seems to be that's exactly what it's saying. And if it is, this is what this means. The Lord considers His people, that means you, the Lord considers His people whom He bought with the blood of Christ to be His most treasured possessions in all the earth. You are. That should be comfort to believers. Because part of what happens when we go through suffering, trials, tribulations, loss, is that we can feel... People could tell us, the the enemy could tell us, we can tell ourselves, I guess God doesn't love me that much. He doesn't love me as much as this other person who doesn't have to go through what I'm going through. Have you ever done that? Kind of look at someone else, wow, they just have a blessed life. You know, like with human families, as much as parents try a lot of times, like, oh, you know, you favor, you know, the older one, you favor the younger one, you favor, oh, you know, it's your stepkids. so you don't favor them, or, you know, this, that, and the other. God doesn't have favorites. He's a perfect father in that sense. He does not have favorites. One of the ways the Bible speaks of this is that God is no respecter of persons. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he doesn't respect people. It means he doesn't arrange people in hierarchical groups. Oh, I love masters better than slaves. No, the point of Paul's passage is that no, he doesn't. So masters watch out. He does not look at you as being more valuable than slaves. He puts you on equal footing so you better watch how you treat them. We are His treasured possessions. His whole goal in creation is not just to get the land back or the earth back or the mountains back or the trees back or the stars or the planets or anything else. It's you. You are His treasured possession. And if that's how God feels about us, if that's true, if He looks at us as His treasures, I'll tell my kids that, you know, just... Sometimes when we're just cuddling, I'm just kissing him and just like, you are my treasure. I adore you. Like, you don't even know. I love you so much. Just, mm, 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 mm. I just love my babies. I think I've gotten more affectionate as I've gotten older. I just love my babies because the time is short for for them to be so young and to even want a kiss from dad, right? So I just, but I, I love them and adore them. Well, what if that's how God feels about you? He absolutely adores you and he loves you. You are his treasure. And if that's the case, you can trust Him with your life. Even if you go through hard times, which most likely you will, you have not stopped being His treasured possession. He loves you. You're more important to Him than anything else in creation. And we need to know this because this is a part of our identity in life. If God really feels this way about us, that we are His riches, then this alone provides tremendous comfort for facing the trials of life. The last thing Paul prays for is power and he takes up the entire following section verses 19 through 23 the end of chapter 1. This is all about power so we can kind of know with the amount of time that Paul spends expounding on power this is his main point that he's getting to. He's really wanting to talk about power. Look at verses 19 through 23. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet, and gave to him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of the things that's helpful to know about the city of Ephesus at this time is that it was the third most populous city in the entire Roman Empire, behind Rome itself and Alexandria. It was not only a significant political city, they were initially in the running to erect a temple to Caesar to be a part of the temple cult. The only reason they lost out is that Caesar felt that the cult of Artemis or Diana was so prominent, as a matter of fact, her temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world at the time, six times bigger than the Parthenon. In Athens. So it was just a magnificent structure, and she was the focal point. There are many deities in Ephesus, many, but Artemis or Diana was the premier, and uh, Nero was actually worried that if he erected his uh, cult temple to the emperor, it would be dwarfed by the temple of Diana, so he chose not to do it there. But what that was about and what studies have shown is the cult of the emperor really wasn't about religion. It was about politics, but in religious garb. We know this because we have almost zero record, it might even be zero, we have almost zero record of anyone making any kind of prayer for help or forgiveness or power or victory or anything to a Caesar. Of any kind, but we have many hundreds, thousands of Greek papyri recording prayers and incantations to all the other gods like Diana and Artemis. Uh, Give me a child, Diana. Uh, make me fertile. Oh, you know, goddess of the hunt, make me prosperous in my work. Uh, oh, goddess Artemis, my enemy is seeking my life. Take their life before they have the. Ch-. All these kinds of prayers go to these gods. So what we know about the Temple cult is it really wasn't about religion. It was about politics. It was about political power. So not only was Ephesus a seat of political power and prominent due to its population, it was also a financial and economic center. We know that it was home to one of the greatest emporiums or markets of Asia Minor. And so anyone trading in goods and precious metals and spices would travel there. So there was a lot of money changing hands in Ephesus. So there was economic power as well as political power. And then thirdly, we know, again from these texts that I mentioned, it was a city that was engulfed in the occult and magical practice. Again, we have all kinds of scrolls denoting these various incantations, and there's uh, even these specific um, practices called the Ephesia grammata, the Ephesian words, and they're actually well-known worldwide, and were even chanted by Olympic wrestlers, and they would have these chants, they would say, with these stones that were supposedly tied around Diana's neck, and they would tie them around their ankle when they were wrestling, They would give them victory, and there was a a, a fable, we think. We don't think it was real, but it became legend. There was an Ephesian wrestler, and he defeated seven of his opponents in a row, and then his anklet fell off, and he lost his next three in a row. So the story started going around that these special, sacred words of the Ephesians could give someone spiritual power. We actually see this supported in the book of Acts itself, chapter 19. You'll notice that even after believers came to Christ, it wasn't until the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest who didn't know Jesus, but tried to use his name like a magical formula. But as a Pentecostal minister friend of mine once said, you got to be under the blood before you plead the blood, brother. That's what he told me, and it's absolutely true. You can't just use Jesus' name like a magical chant. You've got to be under the blood in a relationship with Jesus. So these seven sons of Sceva, Jewish priests, were trying to exorcise a demon out of someone, and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, because I don't have a relationship with you, and they were thinking it's just magic words, and then the demon gave them such a savage beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. We won't go into what that's all about, but that's what happened. And if you read what happens next... Very interesting. And it says, And many of those took their books of magic and burned them. And Luke records it was probably equal to 50,000 days' wages. That's a lot of magic and occult stuff. And it also indicates that some of these people were believers, but they were having a hard time letting go of the power that this occult practice had on their lives. So I say all this, why does Paul spend so much time talking about power? He talked about hope. That's vital. talked about the riches in Christ, that we are the riches that God has inherited in Christ. Why so much time on power? Because power was prominent in Ephesus. And we may not cling to power in the same way that Ephesians do, but make no mistake, Modern, Western, yes, even secular people desire power every bit as much as they ever did. But we will go about it different ways. And so it's important that we understand what Paul wants you to know. Whatever power you're grasping for, control over this situation. When people commit crimes, when they do sinful things, when they use abusive language, when they hurt people physically, what are they doing They're doing the things the Ephesians did. They're trying to take power, trying to seize power from them. I'm going to make you behave a certain way by treating you this way, doing these things. I'm going to control this relationship by doing this. I'm going to make these people, I'm going to threaten them and then they'll do what I want in business. I'm going to do... That's grasping for power. The Ephesians would recognize that and say, oh yeah, we do that too. We just also think one of the ways of doing it is is chanting these words. So whether we are ancient Ephesians or whether we are modern Western people, the point is the same. The true power in the world is not any of these things. The true power in the world is Jesus Christ who is the authority over all things, both seen and unseen. Whether that's political power, whether you want to look at presidents and congress, or prime ministers, or kings, or whoever it is, Jesus is the true authority over all them. Or if you look at the spiritual world and you, and you think of angels and demons, and, and sometimes even Christians will mistakenly do this, assign too much power to demons. And to Satan. And certainly they are more powerful than you. Yes, that's true. But you do not reckon that Jesus is almighty, all powerful, that at his name, demons tremble. That if he decides one day he doesn't even want them to exist, boom, they are gone. They are into the realm of non existence. Jesus is almighty. And for people that, you know, maybe don't like art and church history, this is where I think some of the great cathedrals and the paintings are beautiful. What we have to remember when we see these great works of art is when you get a picture of Jesus, it's not capturing everything about Jesus. If it's not an object of worship, and we wouldn't worship images of Jesus, and no painting or porch is going to capture everything. But one of the things that's prominent in cathedrals in Europe is you'll see up in the dome and you'll see Jesus with His arms outstretched in glory. And some people are like, well, that's not the Jesus I saw who's you, know, you know, near. He's, Jesus is your homeboy and He's your buddy and He's hanging out. But this is a right picture of Jesus. This one right here. Jesus Christ, Pantocrator. He is the Almighty One. It's the Jesus you see in Revelation, who has flames of eyes, and He is almighty, and He is all-powerful, and Paul wants the Ephesians to know that, because they are tempted to believe that there is power that exists outside of Jesus that they must surrender to and reckon with, and Paul's response is that that is a lie. There is no authority, no power you must surrender to that is outside of Christ. All authority in heaven and earth, both seen and unseen, is given to Jesus. And all must bow at His feet. And so there is no power in the world that we need to fear. Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. I like what Dr. Matthew Saduku said. He said, "...there is no spiritual force outside the dominion of Christ." As John Phillips rightly wrote, "...whether Babylonian despot or Persian satrap, Greek conqueror or Roman Caesar, Pope or Prince, Holy Roman Emperor or Muslim Sultan, British Monarch or German dictator, American President or Russian Commissar, all must learn that the powers that be are ordained of God, Romans 13.1. All secular seats of power are subservient to His. This means that everyone or every problem is subject to the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Your career problem submits to the authority of Jesus Christ. Your health problem must submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Your family problems must submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Your financial problems must submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And yes, even the angels and demons themselves must bow their knees and submit to the authority of Christ. We may not chant magical incantations today, but when we believe that Christ is not sufficient, and is that not something that we are capable of believing at certain times, but if we believe Christ is not sufficient for us and we begin to look outside of Him for power to control a situation, we are repeating a common ancient error of missing the one who in Paul's words is head over all things. And so this morning we are faced with the reality that we all seek hope, riches, and power to some extent. But the problem is without Jesus the world hopes but only in a future which is beyond their control. The world seeks riches but only the kind you can't take with you when you die. And the world seeks power but only the kind that is never absolute and always tends to corrupt. But Paul says in and through Jesus and the Spirit, we can experience hope that is certain, riches that never fade, and power that is pure and purifying. And That's my prayer. We would experience this hope, these riches, and this power today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for sending Your Son, Jesus. We thank You for sending the Spirit because without the Spirit, we could not know Jesus as Lord. It would not be possible. And so, Lord, I just pray now that that revelation Paul spoke of, that spirit of wisdom and revelation that opens the eyes of the heart, that You would do that right now. And that we would surrender. Lord, if we are hoping in things and people, And we find ourselves perhaps in a place of despair or we're setting ourselves up for despair. Help us to experience true and certain hope in Your calling on our lives. Lord, if any of us feel that we are not valuable, that we are not as important or as loved as anyone else, help us to hear that You consider us the riches of Your inheritance. That is why it was worth sending Your Son Jesus to die because that's who we are to You. And Lord, if we've been submitting to other earthly powers because we believe they're in charge, Lord, help us to repent and see that You, Jesus, You and You alone are the head over all things. And that we have You as the head of the church. And so we just pray that You would bless us now as we respond to You in this time of response and worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.